at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. When we began talking about producing a podcast, of course, the first question was why? And during the brainstorming, we realized that at CRI, we care a lot about science communication. For instance, scientific writing has been and continues to be a major focus of what we do to help researchers enhance the impact of their ideas through writing. And so we thought this was a good time to add something else. With the curiosity habit, we wanted it to be something a little bit different in terms of talking about research. And we thought that the trick here will be to focus on the person doing the research more so than on the details of the research ideas. We're interested, of course, in what people are researching, but we're even more interested in why they're doing it, what draws them to the work that they do, and how they actually approach it. In other words, we wanted to sort of pull back the curtain on the personal stories behind the research so that we can get closer to audiences that we might not be as familiar with. We would also like to give people a flavor for what it means to be a scientist and try to debunk some of the assumptions about doing science. Because so often it almost feels like doing research requires removing the researchers from their ideas as if the research is just a product or something that has always been. Therefore, in every episode, I will invite a medical education researcher to let us look behind the scenes of their stories. Maybe sad, maybe funny, maybe completely unexpected, but all in all, at the Curiosity Habit, we believe that bringing those stories out is one step forward in humanizing the research we do. Thank you for listening and let's turn into our first episode. Hello everyone, my name is Saira Cristancho. I'm a scientist at the Center for Education, Research and Innovation. And today I have the great pleasure to introduce you to our current director, Dr. Chris Watling. And I'm going to have a conversation with him about his research and the ideas behind his research. Thank you, Saira, it's a pleasure. So, of course you and I have met for, for a, quite a while and you have uh, we have had some different conversations, but one thing that it struck me uh, some time ago was that you said that you never planned to do a PhD or become a researcher per se, and you ended up doing a PhD. So I, I wanted to know a little bit about what, what drove you to take that route to be a researcher and to do a PhD. Yeah, sort of a, a midlife right turn in my career. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I really, I really, really mean that. I, I had never intended to be a researcher. I didn't feel like it was part of my identity. Um, I never would have imagined that I would have 
done a master's degree or a PhD, that they were not things that were part of my plan. Uh, I started out my professional life as a community general neurologist. Uh, I worked in Sudbury uh, for a number of years before there was a medical school there. Um, and I just basically saw patients all day. Uh, and, and, and I think became um, in some ways a little bit um, engaged with the community on an educational level. I did things for the Multiple Sclerosis Society and, and the local ALS group and things like that. Um, but, but I found that I, what I really liked actually was opportunities to teach. And I had a few opportunities to teach there. Uh, there were some medical students and some residents that came by. And so when I came back to London, it was really about um, uh, finding a job that would give me more opportunities to teach. I still hadn't envisioned that there would be any research connected with that at all. I probably couldn't have told you what education research was even. Uh, and so it was kind of a gradual process. Uh, I think one of the things that really turned things around for me was discovering that there was a way of doing research, qualitative research, that was different from the kind of research I had previously been exposed to. And qualitative research, as you know, uses uh, things like words as data and tries to interpret people's stories and their experiences as they actually unfold, rather than kind of creating experimental conditions to, to manipulate. And the only research I'd ever been involved in before when I was a student and a resident was like molecular biology research in a lab. And while it was somewhat interesting, it just didn't inspire me. Um, when I um, kind of discovered that you could do qualitative research, I think it really linked with, um, it spoke to me in terms of what I had already developed skills in and interest in. You know, I've sometimes had to talk about my research to neurology audiences. And one of the ways that I found to kind of, in some ways, get them on board is to say that, you know, um, qualitative researchers do pretty much what neurologists do. They sit down with people who have had sometimes unusual experiences. They talk to them about those experiences. They listen to their stories and they try to interpret and make sense of those stories. And then collectively, after they've listened to a lot of people's stories, they start to make sense of stories in a way that helps others. Um, and that can help them to see patterns that can be useful in their work. So a lot of neurology work is really just listening to people's stories about unusual experiences, interpreting them, looking for the patterns, and trying to make sense of them. So that really spoke to me, and now that's what I do as a researcher, is I, I, I identify problems that relate to education and learning, questions that I have in those areas, and I go to people who are experiencing these kinds of things that I think are relevant to those problems. And I talk to them and I, I try to make sense of their stories. So, so really the reason that I, you asked me, how did I ever get into kind of uh, being a researcher? It turned out that when I found that way of doing research, suddenly research became really exciting and interesting to me in a way that I had never considered before. I kept having ideas. I, I really enjoyed the process of following through on those ideas. Um, I've always liked writing, and it's a kind of a research that gives you real opportunities to write and to use your writing to express these ideas. And so it all just kind of fell together. And I thought, well, um, gosh, this is something that I wish I'd discovered 20 years ago, but I found it now. And uh, I have an opportunity to really pursue it and learn more about it and try to get better at it. So one of the things that it have been great for me to witness here at the center is how your research program has taken off internationally, like 
people know what lens research in different ways. But I'm not sure if people know what inspired you to choose that topic, particularly the topics that, that you research on. Uh, what's the catalyst for you to choose that particular area? Well, a couple of things. So um, I think what... I would say the work that I've done that's probably captured most people's attention and that people most often want to hear about is um, work that involves comparing how medicine does business in education to how learning occurs in other areas, how musicians learn, how athletes learn, um, how teachers in training learn, and looking at what we can draw from those other fields. Um, I think it's probably captured people's attention because Quite frankly, I think uh, doctors like the idea of thinking of themselves as elite athletes or thinking of themselves as high-level musicians. There's something about that training that kind of speaks to them and, and that they can relate to their own experience. The other thing is if you go in a room of health professionals, uh, professionals and ask them how many of them have ever taken a music lesson or how many of them ever have done a sport and got some coaching on a sport, almost everybody will put up their hand. There are experiences that we can relate to. Um, and how did I get interested in that? You know, I've heard you say that one of the things that you need to learn to get to be a good researcher is not to try to kind of homogenize yourself and fit the mold of everybody else, but to actually find the things that are distinct about your background and to, and to use them and to actually recognize that those are the things that give you a distinct voice. Uh, I am not a high level athlete, um, but I, I have done lots and lots of music training in my life. Um, when I thought of, career choices when I was in high school, um, my main um, options were to go to university and study science or to uh, study music and to try to be a professional classical musician. Uh, luckily, I have a super strong pragmatic streak and I thought the likelihood of making a living as a concert pianist in Canada was extremely, extremely low. Uh, so I actually, my choice to do uh, science and medicine was much more about pragmatics than anything else. My music teachers in high school kind of anticipated that I would become a professional classical musician. I am so glad that I didn't. <laughs> um, and for, but for many years, that part of my identity, I was just sort of on a shelf somewhere. It really had nothing to do with the work that I did as a, as a physician, as a neurologist, as a, even as a medical teacher. And then in some of my early research work, I started getting interested in the idea of culture and how the culture that we learn in influences what we expect um, how we expect our teachers to behave, what kind of conversations we anticipate having, what we value, um, what feels normal and what feels threatening. Uh, and as I started to think about that, I think that kind of long buried background made me think, you know, I, I recognize some of these feelings from what it's like to be a musician. I, I wondered, for example, why I felt personally quite sensitive to criticism as a medical student and as a resident, and yet I never felt very sensitive to criticism as a music student. And I thought that was curious because I'm the same person and I've got the same brain. And so why am I reacting differently in these different settings? So the, the research that allowed me to explore medicine and then sports, which was I'm more of a sports fan than I am an athlete, um, 
yeah, was really kind of growing out of that, that kind of curiosity about why do people act differently in different settings? And I drew a little bit on my own understanding and my own experience as a musician and as a music student to try to, to try to make something out of that from a research perspective. So it's intriguing to me that, uh, and I find it fascinating that uh, comparison between you being comfortable with criticism in one domain and not so much in the other domain and yet the domain you chose to be a researcher is, is the one that makes you uncomfortable to receive criticism so I, i'm wondering how have you managed to to navigate that especially in a career where we get more rejections and failures than successes sometimes <laughs> well i mean i think that's the other thing you know that the, the broader picture focus of my research has been about feedback and uh, I am I'm sure that I'm drawn to it because I have a personally a little bit kind of challenging relationship with feedback. Um, I recognize that in, in medicine, like in music, and when I've taken uh, lessons in different sports, I recognize that feedback can be really helpful, really powerful, and really um, influential in terms of shaping how I have learned and how I do things and has been sometimes responsible for sort of turning points that have really helped me to be better at what I do. I've also recognized that it's often very difficult. And I recognize these reactions in myself that I don't like very much, but I think they're interesting to study as a researcher. Why do people get defensive about um, uh, feedback that kind of is uh, critical? Why is our first reaction when we get uh, reviews back on a paper to um, vent about how the reviewers uh, just don't have any sophisticated understanding of this work? Um, you know, why do we behave that way around feedback when we know that it's good for us and we have lots of examples of how it's made us better. Um, so I also, you know, I, I would say uh, for researchers, sometimes when you're researching things that relate to your own experiences, you have to be willing to, um, you know, really kind of take inventory of yourself and of the way that you react and respond to things and um, and think about how that shapes your perspective on the problem. Um, and uh, it, you know, requires you to do some interesting soul searching, but it create, it makes for interesting questions. So the other part of your uh, identity as a researcher that to me has been so good to see is how good of a writer and speaker you are. Uh, and I wanna talk a little bit about the writing piece and the writing skills. What is it that creates in you so much passion? When we talk about writing, your eyes transformed. So what is it about writing and public speaking that really drives you in? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've always liked to, well, I shouldn't say I've always liked to write. I've always thought I was a pretty good writer. But to be honest with you, I didn't know why. I was a kind of an intuitive writer. Um, I would uh, write in ways that I thought sounded right. And... One of the things about being a qualitative researcher and, of course, about being a graduate student uh, in midlife or at any point in your life is that you got to get used to doing a lot of writing, a lot of writing and rewriting. And um, I recognized with the opportunity to do that, that I uh, not only liked it a lot, um, but that I was able to get a lot more analytical about what makes for good writing, what makes for persuasive writing, what's going to be the kind of writing that is going to allow me to, to, to succeed in this field, to persuade other people, to, 
to kind of get them to think differently about things. There's such a great power in writing, um, if, you can, if you can harness it, to be able to shift the way that people think about problems. And that's what I think good researchers are able to do. So if you, and, and if you can't, if you don't do that part, then you often end up with research that just doesn't have the kind of impact that it needs to have. So the writing is such a key piece of being able to kind of go from just your own ideas into a way of talking to people and getting them to think about and see problems. So in part, I got more interested in writing out of necessity because researchers need to do it and grad students need to do it. And I, I needed to get good at it and also more analytical about it. Um, I've also always, for some reason, really loved editing other people's writing. <laughs> and, um, and so I got, I've tried to work at getting better at being able to um, sort of have the right language to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it so that I can kind of explain it to other people and hopefully help them to strengthen their writing. And it has become absolutely my favorite thing to do as a professional is to try to teach writing and coach writing. If you think, uh, you know, it's a surprise to me that I, I became a researcher, it's a big surprise that I managed to fit into, you know, that, that this has become part of my professional world to get to teach writing. It's, a, it's actually kind of a thrill every time I get to do it. I think I, I can't believe I have this opportunity. Um, but I, I think that's one, it's another one of those things of, you know, as you go on in your career, you start to find those areas where you think you can make a contribution and where you, you know, you feel like you have something to offer. And then you have to work at being able to, you know, sort of polish that up so that you can offer it in a way that's really meaningful and, 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 and productive. So I totally agree that having a good piece of writing will take your research and your contributions farther. Uh, but yet it's one of the most difficult and less enjoyable things for most researchers. So given that you have so much passion for writing, I wanted to know, what do you think is the, the key aspect that you have to cultivate in order to, to be able to develop that writing interest and that writing skills beyond just the grammar or the structures or that the techniques yeah i um you know i i don't know that everybody is naturally going to be inclined to love writing and i don't love writing all the time sometimes it's a chore i think that's the first thing you know i'm a, i'm a distance runner as well and sometimes people ask me um you know, how do you, uh, how do you manage to love running so much? And I think, well, w one thing is that um, I love the feeling it gives me. Um, I like the opportunities it gives me, but I don't like the act of running all the time. In fact, a lot of times it's just hard. It's hard work. And I think once I, the thing that has allowed me to become a good runner, or at least a persistent runner, is to just recognize that it is always going to feel like hard work. That's part of it. And so you get a sense of accomplishment because there's a feeling that hard work is involved. And I, I think there's something similar in writing, which is that um, uh, it, is not, it is not always, if I have a day that I need to write something, it's not always just a pleasure all day long where I'm just sitting and typing and thinking, oh, it's fantastic, I'm having the best time. It's hard. And, and I think, you know, you, you know uh, some days it flows and some days it doesn't. But when you get it right, 
there's something so rewarding because I think uh, it allows you to be clear and persuasive and it, it, it gives you a sense of impact and a sense that your ideas and the work that you've done are actually going to have a meaning beyond you. Um, the other thing, just for me, is I love fantastic turns of phrase. I just really enjoy when people find the, this clever way of writing something. Um, I love seeing people get away with something that just captures exactly the thought that they wanted to get across in an original and creative way. Um, and I find inspiration in, you know, like songwriters and, 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 and writers that I read. Uh, I just sometimes really, really love a great sentence or a great turn of phrase. So that helps as well. Because every once in a while I write one of them myself and I just, I, it, it, I find it really rewarding. It's a lot of fun to do that. Yeah. So you have been able to like transition into being a researcher, as you said, in my midlife uh, crisis, if you want to call it that way, <laughs> but yet becoming really successful in a, in a shorter period of time. Most people take the whole life to be known as a researcher. For yourself, how do you define success? Uh, well, um, that's a really interesting question because I think when you, when you transition into something in the mid part of your career, I, I think there may be different things that are markers of success. You know, uh, for me, um, for better or worse, it is less important to me that I get big uh, career award type grants, for example. Um, I'm lucky enough not to really need them. My career doesn't really depend on them. And that, that's been a little bit freeing, but it also means that that's not a measure of success that I, I would look toward. Um, I, I, I like getting things uh, published, but I, you know, I must say I, I, <laughs> I, I read an obituary of somebody in a clinical journal And the first paragraph listed this individual's number of publications. It said, how many original articles, how many book chapters? And I thought, that is so sad. <laughs> so that to me just didn't, doesn't seem to be a measure of success. I'm happy to, to be able to publish things because it gets the ideas out there and because it lets me write and to, you know, to, to sort of play around with, with writing. I really, really, what I aspire to do and uh, I, I, you know, it's a work in progress. I aspire to be somebody who changes the way that people think about problems, particularly problems that they thought they understood or that they took for granted. Um, what I really, really like is when I can leave people saying, um, I see this in a different way. I think it means we need to go back and rethink exactly how we had planned to do this thing. Um, so, you know, for me, success is about finding ways to be a thought leader Um, rather than kind of accumulating, you know, publications or grants or those other measures of success. But it's a privilege to be able to say that. I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm able to do that because, you know, one of the advantages of a mid-career shift to this is that I had already established a career. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, I, I, I haven't had to, to build all of that from, from the start, because I already had sort of a platform, a safety platform that I could work from. And I really, really do recognize what a privilege that is. The other big part of your um, career and role now is the leadership. Uh, and I, I I'm curious to know about how do you balance being a scientist, but also a leader 
in different aspects? And how do you see the two of them intertwining? And why do you find it so rewarding to be part of, of those or wearing those two hats? Well, I think I find areas of overlap. Um, and so I have for, you know, 10 or 15 years sort of had one foot in the world of research and scholarship and one foot in the world of sort of policy and leadership. Um, I think each one influences the other, hopefully most of the time in a positive way. Um, if, I am, if I am contributing to a policy discussion, I also have the perspective of a researcher and I think um, that brings sometimes uh, some new ways of seeing things that makes those discussions more productive. And if I'm trying to think of new research ideas or talking with colleagues as they work through their research ideas, I think the leadership and policy work gives me a sense of, of um, kind of an ear to the ground in terms of what concerns really matter to this community. Um, what are people who are trying to do education in the health professions as opposed to just uh, to research about it, to, to actually do it and implement it? What are they concerned about? What are they struggling with? And how do we help to make sure that the research is going to matter? Um, and so I, I try to align the two so that each one influences the other, I hope. Most of the time, I think the research background makes me a more effective and, and thoughtful leader. And I hope that the leadership work can make me a more effective and thoughtful researcher. It's not always easy to combine them. But the other thing is I, I actually, I really like uh, policy and, and, and leadership work. It's, it's fun to also have a chance to influence the pragmatic reality of how, how education unfolds. Gives you a sense that, you know, that, that the research matters and that you're actually trying to grapple with the, the sort of the real life problems that are in front of you that have to be solved by the end of the week and that can't wait until all of the research unfolds. So it's, you know, for me, it's just about kind of having a, a nice balanced approach to, to, the, to the work. So now that you have established your reputation and identity in, as a researcher, uh, and you have reached a point of like you're a senior researcher now, what is the next curiosity for you? What's in your mind that maybe listeners don't know that you're working on or are going to embark in in the next phase of your research? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I have I've increasingly become curious about how the influence of culture intersects with the kind of the agency of the individual. Uh, how much we as individuals can shape the world around us and how much the culture inevitably directs what we do. And I just find that kind of divide endlessly fascinating. I think there's a dynamic there where it shifts a little bit back and forth. But that's, I think, what I remain very curious about is continuing to find ways of exploring um, to what extent we are guided by the culture around us and the, and the social aspect of how we learn and to what extent we are individual beings. You know, as a neurologist, I really was inclined to approach learning from very much a cognitive perspective. You know, learning just happens in your brain and each person learns in a different way. And then you start to think, well, then why, why is the experience of learning uh, if you're trying to make your forehand stronger in tennis, so different 
sometimes it's different, uh, from learning to take a, a, a history from a patient with mental health problems or from learning to do a complex surgical procedure. What's going on there? It's not just that your brain works differently because the task is different. There's a whole culture and social around that. One phrase that I wish I had written, but I didn't, uh, is um, uh, Stephen Billet, who's a researcher who theorizes about workplace learning. Uh, he really believes strongly in the idea that individuals do have agents, agency and sort of free will. And he wrote something, I'm paraphrasing, but he wrote something along the lines of that um, learners are not hapless hostages to the social. Um, and I think that's so interesting because I think sometimes maybe they are. <laughs> um, and they're certainly very strongly influenced by the expectations and the values and the culture that surrounds them. It's very hard for us, especially for more junior learners, to, to, to press against that and, and to shift it and to change it. So that's really kind of, that's one area where my, my ongoing curiosity is uh, taking me is about how how we balance that and, and does it matter i think of course it matters because in medicine in particular um we have we have created a very very structured um and very culturally distinct way of educating people and i think we sometimes don't see that that's making certain things possible and and facilitating some things but it might be closing other doors on how people can learn and what they can learn in ways that are really going to um um make it harder for us to have the kind of health professionals that we want in the future i have the the good benefit of working with you and, and seeing you almost every day at the center but i was also curious to know if you can share with our wider audience um what will be one thing that most people wouldn't know about you as a researcher? Hmm. What would most people not know about me as a researcher? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, which is that um, when I get reviews back from a paper I have submitted, I don't read them for some time. I don't even look at them. I will sometimes read the very first line put it into two categories, rejected or not rejected. And regardless of which category it falls into, I can't read them for a while. This has to do with my, I think a lot of people read them right away and then they get upset about them. I don't even read them. I can't, I just put them aside. I have to psych myself up for it. So that gives you a bit of a sense of my, my, um, <laughs> my natural fondness for criticism and, and feedback. People, people might not know that about me because I think when you're a little bit known for being a feedback researcher, people might make the assumption that I am exceptionally good at um, accepting feedback. <laughs> Sometimes I am. Um, you know, all positive feedback is welcome all the time. Um, but uh, but sometimes I think like everybody else, I kind of struggle with that idea of getting uh, stuff that I'm really going to have to do some do some soul searching about. So I guess for people who collaborate with you also the message is to give you some space until you can process <laughs> that and don't email you right away. What are we doing with this? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because <laughs> I, I often find my, my, my collaborators have like, they have done this in-depth analysis within the first 20 minutes and they've started to figure out how they can respond. And I, I'm like, I just, I saw that in my inbox and I couldn't even open it. So <laughs> thank you for sharing. 
Okay, thank you, Chris, for being part of our uh, curiosity habit today. Great talking to you. Uh, and we look forward to continue working together. Thanks. Thank you. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.